been paying attention to the order of worship, you will have caught that the theme of this morning's worship is the preeminence of Christ. Before I had any clue that I would be standing up here this morning, I read a headline that I had to at least find out what the lead sentence in this article was. The headline was something about a pandemic 20 times more deadly than COVID. As I read the first and second sentence, I realized that this was simply the World Health Organization's attempt to scare all nations into signing a pandemic treaty. There's nothing on the horizon, but they're saying that if you want to be safe in the future, you have to sign this treaty, which gives the World Health Organization preeminence. Mankind is always, always looking for preeminence. But we know that whatever preeminence they think they achieve, it is very minor and not very lasting. We have a Savior whose preeminence is absolutely astounding. And this morning, I want to take you to the very heart of the letter to the Colossians. It's the portion of Colossians that repeatedly came to my mind last winter as I was contemplating what the Lord would have me teach this past summer. And I couldn't get away from this wonderful, wonderful hymn in Colossians 1. John MacArthur declared that of all the Bible's teachings about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than Colossians 1, 15 through 19. In fact... MacArthur suggests that the understanding of this passage is, in his words, vital to the proper understanding of the Christian faith. So if we wish to profitably dig into this text this morning, considering each potent thought, we first need to consider its background just a bit to learn something about its form and something about the issues that Paul addressed in this magnificent portrayal of our Savior. So first, we can turn to its form, and this will be the quickest. The majority of scholars agree that these verses, verses 15 through 19 in Colossians 1, comprise an early Christian hymn that was either borrowed by Paul or was written by him for this particular letter to the Colossians. It's most likely that Paul wrote the hymn because every single part of it resonates with his familiar themes. Scholars have endlessly debated the specific structure of the hymn. Due to the complexity of the material, there are a myriad of ways in which it could be outlined. Consequently, agreement on the specific form or outline of the hymn is nearly impossible to find. Its background is a different story. That's helpful because the background of the hymn is critical for proper understanding of the hymn. Scholars agree that Paul has combined creation material from Genesis 1 and 2 with wisdom themes 
Some conjecture that Paul wrote this hymn as a meditation on the creation story in Genesis 1, infusing it with wisdom motifs, particularly that of Jesus as the wisdom of God. As helpful as that is, even more helpful to understanding this glorious hymn than the specific form or suggested background is identification of the issues that Paul addressed in this corrective portrait of our Savior. Those issues come more sharply into focus as we identify the ideas behind the basic Greek philosophy which would have driven the Colossian heresy which prompted the Colossian letter. You see, Greeks of Paul's day and after taught a form of philosophical dualism. In this philosophical dualism, they declared that that which is spirit is good and that that which is matter, anything material, is evil. Spirit good, matter evil. They held that because God is spirit, he could never, ever be contaminated by contacting matter. Then they have to explain the existence of a material world. So they theorized that God made a series of emanations. Now that's just a fancy word for something that comes out of something. So they said that God made a series of things that came out of him, each a little less spiritual. Each one, the first one would have been the most spiritual, next one less spiritual, less spiritual, less spiritual, until there was finally an emanation that was unspiritual enough yet powerful enough to create the material universe. It gets worse. The heretics at Colossae evidently considered Jesus as one of God's higher emanations. They believed that because he was a good emanation, he could never take on a body composed of evil matter. Thus, they absolutely denied Jesus' humanity. And because the idea that God could become man was absurd to them, they also denied his deity. That's bad enough, but it got even worse. They taught that Christ was not only not God in human flesh, but they also taught that his work of redemption was insufficient to save. In their heretical view, salvation required a superior, mystical, secret knowledge beyond that of the gospel of Christ, which then had to be buttressed by other prescribed practices. Obviously, they taught that they were the dispensers of this knowledge that was so necessary and so hidden, and that when you took their knowledge... And when you combine that with worship of good emanations, what we would call angels, and when you combine that with the worship of good emanations and the practice of certain Jewish ceremonial laws, one could finally defeat the bad emanations and achieve salvation. By far the most dangerous aspect of this Colossian heresy was its rejection of Christ's deity and with that his preeminence. Before addressing the other issues, 
Paul made an emphatic defense of this, this crucial doctrine. As we will see in this hymn found in verses 15 through 19, Paul refuted every single one of the false claims of the false teachers, and he trumpeted our Lord's true identity. The depth, the beauty of this declaration is incredible because the subject is marvelous beyond our comprehension. So let's begin by reading the entire hymn before we begin to dissect Paul's magnificent portrait of our Savior. If you're not in Colossians 1, please turn there now, and we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Here we find Paul's words that he, that is Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cries. In this hymn, Paul reveals our Lord's true identity by viewing him in relationship to four things that we'll try to move through as quickly as we can this morning. The first thing is his relation to God. Then it's his relation to the universe. Then his relation to the unseen world. And finally, his relation to the church. We begin with Jesus Christ in relation to God, as we see in verse 15. You might recall that we just said that the heretics viewed Jesus as one among a series of lesser spirits descending in sequential inferiority from God. Paul refutes this with two powerful descriptions of who Jesus really is. In verse 15, the first part, we see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word that Paul used here is transliterated in English, and you'll have to follow along and it's phonetically sound this out in your mind. The transliteration is E-I-K-O-N. You get that? E-I-K-O-N. The E is silent. You can guess where we get our word icon from because it's this Greek word. And in the original language, it simply means image or likeness. Man is actually described in 1 Corinthians 11.7 and Genesis 1, 26 and 27 with this exact same word, icon. We know that though man is called the icon of God, man is not the perfect image of God. Man is certainly not in God's image morally because God is holy, completely, perfectly holy, and we are not. Nor are we created in his image essentially 
We do not possess his incommunicable attributes. We are not omniscient. We do not know all things. We are not immutable. We can change. We are not omnipresent. We are not everywhere at once. He is. In some way, we do bear his image, but we know from Genesis that the fall marred the original image of God in man. When one puts their faith in Christ, they're promised that that image of God will at least to some degree be restored. Romans 8.29 declares, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image icon of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. One of the pieces of sanctification is that we are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Never perfectly this side of heaven. You see, that promise will be completely fulfilled when we enter eternal life. Unlike man, however, Jesus Christ is the perfect, absolutely accurate image of God. He did not become the image of God at the incarnation. He has been that from all eternity. By using this term icon, Paul emphasized that Jesus is both the representation and the manifestation of God. Jesus is the full, final, complete revelation of God. This is why he could tell his disciples when they asked him to show them the Father, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the complete, full, final revelation of God. Not only is he the image of God, the second part of verse 15 tells us that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we would be remiss if we did not admit that this is a verse that has been used by heretics throughout the history of the church to try to deny the deity of Christ. From the Arian heretics of the first century and second century to the Jehovah's Witnesses of our day, if you ever get in an encounter with a Jehovah Witness, they love to take you to this verse. Those who would deny our Lord's deity have sought support from this particular phrase. Their argument is that it declares Christ to be a created being who could not possibly be eternal God. This is an erroneous interpretation of the original language and certainly Paul's intention. It completely misunderstands the sense of the Greek word prototokos. It completely ignores the context surrounding this phrase. You see, prototokos, the word that Paul used here, can mean firstborn chronologically. However, its primary reference is not to birth order. Its primary reference is to position or to rank. In both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance, not necessarily the one born first. Scripture is filled with examples of the term firstborn referring to rank 
or position rather than birth order. Although Esau was born first chronologically, we are told that it was Jacob who was the firstborn. That word translated in the Torah and received the inheritance. God also said about Israel in Exodus 4.22, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, I'm guessing that all of you know enough about ancient history that you know that Israel was not the first nation that was ever born. There were lots of nations, including Egypt before, but this is talking about something else. God said of the Messiah in Psalm 89, 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Captain, obvious question. Was there ever a king chronologically born before the birth of Christ in Bethlehem? Obviously, yes. Lots of kings were born before, chronologically, before Christ was born. But God is not saying that this is the chronologic firstborn. This is the one who has the preeminence. He is the highest of the kings of the earth. John said this about Jesus in Revelation 1.15, that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Those who hold that firstborn makes Jesus a created being have another problem, and that is a problem with the description of Jesus elsewhere in the New Testament as, and here's your next Greek word for the day, monogenes. That means only begotten or unique. God told us that he is, that Jesus is his monogenes, his only begotten. The early church father, Theodoret, asked, and he had a very penetrating question. If Christ was only begotten, monogenes, if he was only begotten, could he be first begotten? And how, if he were first begotten, that's chronologic, if he were first begotten, could he be only begotten? How could he be the first of many in his class and at the same time the only member of his class? Not possible. Yet that's the confusion that is inevitable if we assign the meaning first created to firstborn. Now beyond that, Paul was incredibly intelligent and used language brilliantly. If Paul had meant to say that Christ was the first created being, which is what all of these heretics try to tell us, if he, was meant, if he meant to say that Christ was the first created being, he would have used the Greek word prototistos. That means first created, specifically. So if Paul meant that he was first created, Paul would have accurately used the word prototistos. But he did not. He used the word prototokos. So interpreting that word that Paul used 
to mean that Christ is a created being is out of harmony with the immediate context and its usage throughout Scripture. Paul had just finished describing Christ as the perfect, complete image of God. In the very next verse, he refers to Christ as the creator of everything that exists. Further, verse 17 states that he's before all things. Only God existed before creation. Far from being one of a series of emanations descending in inferiority from God. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He is the preeminent inheritor over all creation. Paul has devastated the false teacher's position, and he's just getting started. Next, he turns to Jesus Christ in relation to the universe. Paul had just declared Christ's primacy, or primacy over creation at the end of verse 15. In verses 16 through 17, he gives three specific reasons for that primacy. Why is he primary over creation? First of all, in verse 16, he is the creator of all things. One of the things that has been interesting in my lifetime is to see the way that scientists talk about the universe. When I was in grade school, they thought that the universe was fairly small, relatively speaking, and contained. If you talk to scientists today, they will talk to you about the magnitude of the universe that is so beyond what our imagination can even grasp that it is absolutely incredible. The enormity of the universe is one of the things that displays God's immeasurable power. The universe also bears witness to the wisdom and knowledge of the creator. creator. Scientists now speak of what they call the anthropic principle. Now, if you ever took a course in philosophy at all, I'm sorry that you had to, but if you ever took a course in philosophy, you will have come across the term anthropos. Anthropos is simply a Greek word that refers to mankind. So the anthropic principle is something that relates to mankind. And what the scientists now speak of is that principle which states, duh, that the universe appears to be carefully designed for guess what? The well-being of mankind. These are secular scientists that are catching on to what it sure looks like it was designed. It sure looks like it was designed for our well-being. A change in the Earth's rotation around the sun or on its axis would be absolutely catastrophic. It would make the Earth either too hot or too cold to support life. A small change in the composition of the gases in our atmosphere would quite frankly be fatal to all life. No wonder the psalmist wrote long before any of these scientists who came up with the anthropic principle, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare 
the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In fact, the testimony of nature to its creator is so clear that it is only through willful unbelief that man is able to reject it. Romans 1.20 states, For his invisible attributes, that's God's, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul's conclusion, so they are without excuse. He is the creator of all things. But verse 17 goes on to tell us that he is before all things. This is a way of telling us that before the universe began, he already existed. The Apostle John declared this in the first two verses of his gospel, where he said in John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, before anything existed, he did. He was with God. In his first epistle, John wrote in John, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. He was that which was from the beginning. Not only did the Apostle John declare that he was from the beginning, Jesus himself, to the consternation of his religious foes, admitted this as well. In John 8.58, in a controversy, controversial setting, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before there was ever an Abraham, before there was ever a world, he was. And that term, I am, they recognized was a clear reference to the divinity, and that's why it made them so angry. Jesus declared it himself. The prophets said that the one that was coming was going to be like this. Micah 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now listen to the description of him. Whose coming forth is from of old. That's before time whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The Apostle John declared it. Jesus claimed it. The prophets prophesied it. And in the last chapter of the scripture, Jesus reminds us of it. Revelation twenty-two thirteen, 13, where he says, I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, I'm not meaning to insult your intelligence, but just to hammer this home, anything existing before time began at the creation has to be eternal. Only God is eternal. So this makes Jesus God. Then in the second part of verse 17, we see a third evidence. And that is that in him, all things hold together. I am so grateful for this. I don't know about you, but when I try to fix things, they tend to fall apart on me. And too often I will fix something, I'll put something together, and then I will notice that there's extra parts that I didn't use. Not a pleasant thing. When I do things, they hold together for a little while. I'm glad that when he holds things, they hold together. Not only did Jesus create the universe, he also sustains it. In his book, The Adam Speaks, D. Lee Chestnut describes the puzzle of why the nucleus of the atom holds together. Now, I can guarantee in the public school I grew up in, this was never mentioned. And I'm guessing that in any public school that exists today, this has never been mentioned. But he describes the puzzle of why the nucleus of the atom holds together. We were just told that the atom nucleus has these pieces and that it holds and all this kind of stuff. So listen. Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he looks down in utter amazement at the pattern he's now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny, tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. Earlier, physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel. We all remember that from science. Like repels, unlike attracts. The entire history of electrical phenomena, electrical equipment has been built on these principles known as the law of electrostatic force and the law of magnetism. But when you look at the diagram, there's something wrong here. You have eight positively charged particles that should be repelling each other. Chesnut asks, why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? Carl K. Darrow, a physicist at AT&T Laboratory, agrees. He says, you grasp what this implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should have never been created, and if created, they should have blown up instantly. Now, isn't it interesting that there is something holding it together that is so powerful that we have created nuclear energy off of destroying that which holds it together. 
Yet there they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is also a secret to Darrow, thus far reserved by nature for herself. We just read the secret. We know that it is Jesus who is holding it all together. And that one day in the future, God will dissolve the strong nuclear force. Peter describes it with very graphic terms in 2 Peter 3.10, where he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That which holds it together will be taken away. And it will all blow up. Until that time, we can be incredibly thankful that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1.3, confirming Colossians 1.17. So again, a Captain Obvious statement. Jesus can only be God. He made the universe. He existed outside of it and before it, and he preserves it. There's one other thing that we see him in relation to, and that is in relation to the unseen world. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities referred to in this hymn in that day would have been instantly recognized as referring to the various ranks of angels. Far from being an angel, as the false teachers asserted, Christ created the angels. You see, Scripture makes a clear distinction between our uncreated Savior and the angels that he created. Hebrews 1, verses 7 and 8 declares, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, notice the difference. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. In fact, Jesus is exalted above the angels. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, he asks the question, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, and here's the interesting part, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but the one to come. We are told the reason for God doing that in Philippians 2.10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 1 Peter 3.22 reminds us that he has gone into heaven, that he's at the right hand of God, and here's the interesting part. With angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Because 
our Savior is above the angels. They worship Him. They are in complete submission to His authority. Jesus' relation to the unseen world, just like His relation to the visible world, proves His deity. And then finally, in verses 18 and 19, we see Jesus Christ in relation to the church. Paul presents four great truths about Christ's relationship to his church. Truth number one, Christ is the head of the church. You see what Paul is doing to the Colossian heresy? Jesus is not one of these emanations, one of these lower angels who serves the church. Now there are angels who serve. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits? Speaking about angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. It's not Jesus. Rather, the church is a body, and Christ is the head of the body. He's not an angel that serves. He controls every part of it. He gives it life, and he gives it direction. If we as a church family want to be going in the direction that he's going, we have to listen to his direction. He's the head of the church. Then we're also told that he is the source of the church. The Greek word used here is arche, and sometimes it's translated as beginning. In Paul's use of this term in this beautiful hymn, he uses the twofold sense of source and primacy. He is the source and he is the one who is primary. We know that the church has its origins in Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. As the beginning, as your beginning, he is the church's originator. He is the source of the church. Third truth about this is that he is the firstborn from the dead. You're probably way ahead of me already. Firstborn here once again translates that same word prototokos. Of all those who have been raised from the dead or ever will be raised from the dead, Christ is the highest in rank. He is the firstborn. And then we are told that he is the preeminent one. As a result of his death and resurrection, Jesus has come to have first place in everything. There's another of Paul's hymns that sums this up beautifully. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Being found in human form, he, that is Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus 
reigns supreme over the visible world, the unseen world, and the church. Paul sums up his argument in verse 19 where he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul used a Greek word there that would have driven these heretics crazy. He used the term pleroma. That was a term that was used by later Gnostics to describe the divine powers and attributes that they believed were somehow divided out amongst all these various emanations. So this emanation that's way down on the scale has very little pleroma. This emanation that is higher on the scale has more pleroma. They would have said fullness. So little fullness, more, 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 more. Paul countered this false teaching by stating that the fullness of deity is not spread out in small doses to a group of spirits. The fullness of deity fully dwells in Christ alone. If that wasn't enough for them, he reasserted it in 2 verse 9. We won't go there for sake of time. Because all deity dwells in him, the Colossians don't need angels to help them get saved. They don't need to worship angels and do Jewish rituals to try to get enough power to defeat negative emanations. Rather, in Christ and in Christ alone, they're complete. The glorious truth stated in 2 verse 10. The proper response to these glorious truths was captured in the writing of the Puritan John Owen. He wrote, and I quote, he said it better than I could, the revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in others' inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist of living where he is, and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel? That by a view of it, we may gradually be transformed into the same glory. What? a wonderful Savior. I would be remiss if I did not ask, is he your Savior? If you've never put the whole weight of your trust in him alone, my prayer is that you will take care of that today, that you will trust him today.
our Savior is absolutely preeminent. All who have trusted in Him will enjoy Him for eternity. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a day that will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. We thank you for faithful servants who carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote the very words that you intended for us to receive. We thank you for this glorious hymn of our Savior. We thank you for its marvelous description of his preeminence. And Father, we confess that we need this reminder constantly. We are so prone to getting our eyes off of him and on the circumstances of our life. And whenever we do, we find ourselves in trouble. As the writer of Hebrews encouraged us, we ask that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. And if there is even one among us this day who has not trusted him, we pray that that person would trust him now. For we cannot keep our eyes on you if we've not trusted him. So we thank you that we have a wonderful Savior. Help us to respond with heartfelt adoration, praise, and devotion and obedience. We will give him all the praise in his name. Amen.